Romans 8 has been referred to many times as the greatest chapter in the Bible, and uh, it's very well may be true. It's certainly one of my favorites. I want to start with a question, ask yourself, and it's this. When was, did God first set his eyes on you and love you? I'll give you 10 seconds to decide in your mind when that was. When did God first set his eye on you and love you? No hands need to be raised. The answer is this. Before you were born and before the earth was created. I want to read three short scriptures uh, that are just samples. The Bible is full of this kind of, of, of theology and language. First from Psalm 139. My frame was not hidden from you, David says. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Depths of the earth means the womb. I don't know why. It just does. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Jeremiah 1.5 Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. In Acts 17, 26, Paul speaking, Areopagus. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Some translations say the exact places where they should live. Remember, Paul is talking here to Greeks, not Jews. This is not just some Jewish thing going on here. It has to do with every human being. He allotted the time periods, birth and death, how long we live and where we're going to live and exactly where we were going to live. We're all chosen. Uh, all who are chosen are part of God's saving plan. If he chooses us, we're part of his plan. His love precedes our faith. And our faith is referred to in the New Testament as a gift. Not our gift to God, as some people think, but God's gift to us. He gives us the gift of faith. Before you were born, think about this, God loved you. Before your parents were born, God loved them and you. And before your grandparents were born, he loved them and your parents and you. And you can keep on going back further if you want. I can go back three generations. That's how long our family of faith has been in the faith. Uh, and I've always said that Shireen's was four generations, but now we've recalculated it's five generations because her grandmother and her grandmother's father were both hanged by an angry mob and rescued immediately afterwards by some soldiers. So that was two generations that were saved, without whom there would be no Shireen. Interesting, isn't it? Looking back how things work out. With that, now, how long does that love last? 
we have a saying in our world, everyone has heard, that nothing lasts forever. In fact, not much lasts very long. So we come to our text with that as a background, 18, Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I've, I've used this scripture 20 times probably in the last six years. Won't do it again. One of my favorites and an astonishing piece of theology. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters is understood. Brothers covers both. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are the five stages of the faith life. It's called the golden chain. The golden chain, all those, those five issues. The first two, foreknew and predestined, which is 40% of the whole package, does not involve us at all. We weren't around. We weren't anywhere near being around when he did this. 40% of the, of the chain. And the next two, called and justified, another 40%. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And then the last one, glorified, which is 20%, is that which is yet unrealized, but it is spoken of as a done thing, done deal. Hasn't happened, but it's a done deal. That's called proleptic. That's the word for that. Now notice that all of this is independent of us. Independent of our will, our choices, our goodness or badness, anything. Now I'm going to save this next section, 31 to 34, because I'm going to bring it back in a few minutes. I want to talk a little more about this. In stages 3 and 4, called and justified, we are involved but aware but not the cause. Something done independently of us, uh, but we are not the cause of it, and we're involved in it. Calling and justification is something which God does. He calls us. I remember when I was called, and uh, I was justified uh, 2,000 years ago. But it involved me. Now wait a minute, we say, if God does all of that, and if the last stage he completes later, then what do we do? Do we have any role to play here? Well, what we do is we give thanks and live our lives for Jesus Christ. Thankfully, live out our lives as Jesus Christ's life lives through us to others. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later. This golden chain is our security. That's why we feel secure that we will be in the kingdom of God at the end. There's nothing else that's going to give us that solid security. We'll see how that works. 8.35 to 36. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword, as it is written, for the, his, your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now just in case you thought, in a brief moment, that being a Christian was a skate across the pond, Paul brings us some real solid reality here. 
Tribulation and distress. He knew all about that. We know what that is. We may not have been overtly persecuted, but we know what tribulation and distress are. That just happens more than we want. Persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger. We know some of that, maybe. But Paul knew it all and more. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He gives us the whole catalog, the whole report, which was his interim report. That wasn't uh, his whole life. That was just a little interim report he gives, and it involved at least three shipwrecks. How many here have been shipwrecked once? I haven't either. Don't want to be. He had three, and then one more afterwards, after he wrote this. Then sword was his last experience. Because according to the tradition, Paul was beheaded with a sword at the end in Rome, about mid-60s. And as well, all of the apostles were either by the sword or crucifixion, except for one that we know of, 11 out of the 12. So the answer to the question, what is our role or our part, I repeat, we hand over all of our lives to Jesus Christ in gratitude. It's not an option. It's not one option among six or two. It is the only option for the believer. In gratitude for what he has done, we hand over our life. He bought us. He owns us. So we're not doing any transactions or deals here with God. He just expects us to do what is natural to do. We hand over our lives and say, it's, all, it's yours. Do with me as you want. Happy to serve you. He goes on. No, in all these things, all the things he's mentioned here, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like this uh, rending here of um, more than conquerors. The real word in Greek is over-conquerors. We are uber-conquerors. Over-the-top conquerors. Overwhelming victory he's talking about. Can you name a, some super-conqueror conqueror in the ancient world? approximately the time of the apostles, first century, or thereabouts. Any super conquerors come to mind? What comes to mind is Alexander the Great. He was a uber conqueror. And we are uber conquerors, even though it doesn't seem like that. You know, when, they were, when they were killing Christians, the Christians didn't look like they were conquering anything, did it? No, they were just bleeding and dying right there. I think he was referring to the fact that as soon as they breathed their last breath, they were in paradise. In the criminal on the cross, that very afternoon, Jesus says to me, I'll see you in paradise later. He didn't do much for it. He didn't do anything for it. And then, of course, the resurrection. We will be in resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. So we, in that sense, compared to what we have in the future with what's happening to us now, we are uber-conquerors. Now Paul piles on some couplets. Death, life, present, future, height, depth, etc. The main point he's making here is what he doesn't want us to forget. That is this. Nothing, and we're to take this literally. This is not a figure, figure of speech. Nothing in all creation can separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That's the word you carry with you there. In other words, Paul says you can't think of a single thing that could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Having said that, however, we can and we do because of our weakness in nature. The reservoir of this information about what can separate us are our tragic mistakes and our failures and our sins. What about those four failed marriages? I didn't have any of those, thankfully, but my roommate, Seminary, did. I think he had a fifth when I lost contact with him by that point. Or what about that addiction? Or those addictions? For years, that's people have. Christians who can't seem to break those addictions. Or what I had to do in the war. The terrible things I had to perform and do in the war that haunt me at night. I'm not talking about myself either. I didn't go to war, thankfully. But I know plenty of people who did in congregations who could not sleep at night because of what happened in World War II. Couldn't get it out of their minds. Or the serial killer, David Berkowitz, who one by one killed eight people who were just sitting in their cars talking to each other, but is now a believer. But he can't forget what he did. Talk about something that separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sounds good enough to him. And there are many, many, many others who can come up with exceptions to Paul's rule. We think maybe that what we did, what we were involved in, who we were, are exceptions to what Paul has just said. We sang a minute ago a song called The God Who Stays. And uh, I'll read the first verse back again to you. This is not great poetry. It's from the heart. Somebody's heart. If I were you, I would have given up on me by now. I would have labeled me a lost cause. Because I feel just like a lost cause. If I were you, I would have turned around and walked away. I would have labeled me beyond repair because I feel like I'm beyond repair. Oh, but somehow you don't see me like I do. Somehow, you're still there. That's God. In two verses before this, Paul concludes that he takes care of this situation. And I'm going to go back and read these verses from 31 to 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of of God who intercede, is interceding for us. Well, we can say, who brings the charge? Who brings the accusation? Who's charging us with something? With anything in our history? 
Well, Satan's good enough for that, isn't he? He's always there around looking for the right opportunity to remind you of what it was that really would separate you from God. But we don't need Satan for that, do we? Now we've got friends. We've got enemies. We have relatives. We have preachers who can load us down with more guilt than we can carry. But Paul still says, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us. Let me conclude with this and then a a big takeaway. Yes, we contribute to the sins and evils of the world, all of us, everyone here. We've done our fair share of contribution to the evils of the world. But no, we do not contribute to our justification because we cannot. If we could contribute 1% of our justification, the cross would have no effect because our 1% contribution wouldn't be good enough to cover the 1%. Let me give you an example here. Let's say you're going to the airport here in Munich, you're talking to the agent for Lufthansa, you're flying to LA, and he says, look, we can get you 99% of the way to LA, but you're going to have to fly the other 60 miles on your own. What are the chances of that happening? Exactly the same chances of contributing 1% to our justification. It'll never happen. Although, most Christians in the world do not believe what I just said. Most don't. They think they are, in fact, regularly contributing to their justification by their magnificence, or their glory, or their good works, or their religion, or their piety, whatever. A thousand things. But the problem with those people is that their assurance of salvation is on shaky ground. Because if our salvation is based on any percentage of our contribution, we're always wondering, is it enough? These people are always wondering, is it enough? And I was on that side for many years before I finally think I understood what Paul was saying here. One point takeaway. Salvation and eternal life is of God A to Z. Not partially through, but from A to Z, beginning to end, all of it. Salvation and eternal life comes from God. God's love for you starts with God before the foundation of the world. And His love for you doesn't go away. The goal that he wants us to reach and will reach is strictly through God's everlasting love and everlasting faithfulness. That's why we are secure. He did it. He does it. He will do it. God's everlasting love and faithfulness from which absolutely nothing can separate us. 
It's the good news. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would drive this good news deeply into the, the deepest recesses of our souls and intellects and hearts. And may we know that you have called and chosen and elected us just because you loved us. We have no explanation for it, but you did. And so we want to thank you. And we pray that our gratitude would lead to a happy and joyful, graceful and thankful life for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.